Would you join me in thanking City on a Hill again for leading us in worship today? That's good. That's great. Um, the video that you just saw on the screen, those are some of the softball players from one of our uh, softball teams. And uh, <laughs> there are things that I think are funny and not everybody else thinks are funny. At least, <laughs> at least that's what my wife says. And so um, I think it's funny that I showed up at a softball game and we had all these guys that played softball right on their card piece. Because I, I think the last time I played softball in a church league was maybe about 13 years ago, and it wasn't very peaceful. Uh, and in fact, probably about 15 years ago, I heard this song. I don't know if anybody else has heard, but the actual song is called Church League Softball Fist Fight. That's the actual name of the song. It's a comedy song. But uh, I think it was kind of funny that these guys wrote Peace, and they're, they're a great group of guys, and they're super fans there at the end. But uh, today is Father's Day. And so in honor of Father's Day, I have some obligatory dad jokes. You're welcome. Oh. Please hold your applause. Trust me. So I had the first service to be able to practice this. And there was a certain criteria in the first service when I told these jokes. I needed to know from the first service whether these were cringy enough. Because I wanted to make sure that my three boys, one of whom is on the lights, and two of whom are sitting over here, have mixed emotions about what their dad is about to do. I want to make sure that they cringe just a little bit because it's not a legitimate dad joke and I've not accomplished my mission today on Father's Day unless I'm a little bit cringy for my kids. You hear that? That's right. All right. So I need your help in determining whether these are cringy enough and I need to make my children as uncomfortable as I possibly can. So here's the first joke. Are you ready? After a bad harvest... Why did the farmer try a career in music? Because he had some sick beats, yo. Okay, was that not cringy? Was that not disgusting? That was really gross, right? All right, that was not, that was not good. How are we feeling, guys? Uh, wasn't bad, wasn't bad. Don't worry, they get worse. All right, here's the second one. This is so bad. What, what kind of music do chiropractors like? Hip-hop. Uh, uh, uh. There we go. All right, so. Little crit. Now he's turning the lights off on me. Did you see that? That was good. All right, this is the last one. Okay, this one, this one's my favorite, mostly because I'm essentially a seventh grade boy. Um, how do you make a tissue dance? Pull a boogie in. See, that was painful, right? All right, good, good. So was that cringy enough? Did we make enough people embarrassed? All right. I got one last joke. This is not really a dad joke, and it also doesn't result in me dancing, which you're welcome. So there's a guy, he's shipwrecked on a deserted island. And on this deserted island, uh, the, there's a boat that comes by and sees him, and so they send an, uh, a rescue boat to go get this one solitary guy on the deserted island. And when the, the rescue boat gets there, they show up, there, there are three huts on the island and so they go up to the guy and they're rescuing him and they say hey you're the only person here why are there three huts on this island and the guy says well the first one's my house the second one's my church the third one that's the church i used to go to okay no don't clap at that one either all right so 
Now, we laugh, but here's the issue. There's some truth to that. There's some truth to that. Um, we live in a season, we live in a time where the church has, whether, li- whether we like it or not, a, uh, a reputation that maybe is less than flattering. I'm talking about Big C, the big church. Uh, the big church, Big C, has an uphill battle in the world today, and it's not necessarily because of outside influences on the church. We like to blame the culture, we like to do all that kind of different stuff, but, but it's not so much because of that, but the reputation really is because of the inner turmoil that is happening in the church world today. Uh, you see it almost daily. We're talking high-figure names failing morally and doing extreme devastation to the reputation of the church. Uh, you see anger and hate all the time being, being justified in the church world. And according to Tom Rainer, he's a, a researcher, he works for Lifeway Research Group, in 2019, this is pre-pandemic, so we can't blame COVID or any of that stuff, pre-pandemic, between 100 to 200 churches a week were shutting their doors for the last time. 100, in, just in the United States, 100 to 200 churches a week. So predictably, the tendency that we have is we want to blame, we're going to find a fall guy, right? We want to, we got to put our finger on something to blame for why that takes place. It must be the millennials, or it's got to be the culture, or the internet, or politicians, or it's got to be all this different stuff. But all you have to actually do is start listening to the voices of the people who are leaving. And I've, I've heard some of those voices. I can tell you firsthand, people that I know in love, who in the last year have left church. And really, for one reason that has different expressions, either they or other Christians were treated um, really horribly by other Christians during a pandemic, or during an election cycle, or during a year full of relational and, and racial strife. They saw the interactions or they experienced the interactions of Christians and said, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. In a world, in a world that's all too anxious to find fault and reason to put fault on a church, the church sometimes can't run out of opportunities to give reason. We hand them out. In fact, maybe you're here today in this room or maybe you're watching online because of something someone said that you didn't like or because of something they didn't say that you really wish they would have or maybe somebody did something in a church that you didn't like but you didn't agree with or you wish that they would do something but they're not doing it and it's making you angry and upset okay maybe there was some conflict in a previous church and you need to recover, and that's why you're here today, and that's why you're online today, is, is to get some healing and, and try to get some new direction when it comes to your spiritual life in, a, in the life of a body. Maybe that's what your experience is today. And if you're here for healing, that's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. I'm glad for that. Maybe you're searching for a church where there's going to be no conflict at all, and where the pastor will do exactly what you think he needs to do all the time. I have a newsflash for you. That church doesn't exist, and neither does that pastor. And I know we know that. I know we know that. But it makes what we're talking about today 
in this series so important. This is a really, really important and I think misunderstood fruit of the Spirit. Peace. Peace. We've been looking at these fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, all of those, as we've been kind of looking at what Paul has said to this dysfunctional church in a, in a place called Galatia, we've been trying to understand what does it mean for us to be able to point to those qualities and then for us to say, you know what, this is us. We are love, we are joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We are all of these things. This is us. This is us. In fact, it's on the screen there. I didn't do this in the first service, but for kicks, let's do it right now. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. Would you read this out loud with me? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, the thing that we have to continually remember is that those qualities that you see there, that list, we don't produce those things. I don't wake up this, I didn't wake up this morning saying, I'm going to produce more peace. That's not how that works. What it what generally means is there's probably something in my life that I need to surrender or let go of so that the Holy Spirit can produce peace in my life that starts coming out in how I live my life and how I speak my words and, and all of that different stuff. And so here's this kind of universal truth that we've been landing on in this series. It's on the screen. The evidence of these fruit, the evidence of peace, the evidence of love, patience, all these different things are going to be seen or not be seen in your relationships. You're going to see this play out in your interpersonal relationships with other people inside and even outside of the life of the body of Christ, of, of the church. We don't produce these. The Holy Spirit produces these in us and through us. So then the question is, is this us? Are we peace? Is this you? The simple definition of peace, the simple definition of peace is freedom from quarrels and disagreements and harmonious relations. Harmonious relations. It really comes from the Old Testament word for peace, and I know a bunch of you probably have heard this word before, but it's the word shalom. Shalom. The Hebrew word for peace. It sounds like, it sounds peaceful. Shalom, doesn't it? sounds peaceful. There's a New Testament word for peace as well. It's in Greek. It's called Irene. And both of these words working together to define peace, they, they really kind of, what they illustrate is, is an is a experience where everything is as it should be. Like here is how it should be, and now everything is playing its part and is as it should be. Doesn't that feel like a good place to be? When all of the things are together and is as it should be, there is peace. In fact, the word Irene, the New Testament one in Greek, connotates the idea of a village. And it, it, it's, it's describing a village or a place where all of the systems are working so well that everything is as it should be. And it's probably no coincidence that the person who's in charge of that village or the person that's in charge of that place was referred to as the peace keeper. The peacekeeper was the one responsible for making sure that everything was as it should be. Peace. So when I was growing up, I knew the word peacekeeper as something else. 
When I use the word peacekeeper, is there something that pops into your mind? For me, it's the LGM Intercontinental Ballistic Missile developed by the United States government in 1984 uh, that they labeled peacemaker. They literally wrote peacemaker on it. This is at a time when in fourth grade, I was taught how to hide underneath my desk when the sirens went off because of a threat of thermonuclear war during the Cold War. We name a bomb peacemaker, peacekeeper. So that ought to tell you that somewhere along the line, we've got a distorted picture of what peace is. But here's, if there's an upside to this, here's the upside. The fact that we would want to put the name peacekeeper on something like a bomb or anything else for that matter tells us that there must be a deep-seated part of us that wants peace. How we go about getting it may be debatable, but, but there's something in us that desires peace, that desires for an experience where everything is as it should be. It just sounds attractive to want to be in a place like that, where everything is as it should be, peace. But I don't think it's any wonder if we name a bomb the peacekeeper, that we have a confusing idea of what peace is. We all desire it where people live in good standing with each other, when everything is as it should be. The world is hungry for peacekeepers. I mean, when we vote for a candidate, we're looking for peacekeepers. We're looking for peacekeepers, right? I'm just making sure. <laughs> when we vote for a candidate, we're looking for peacekeepers, people who can resolve conflicts, people who bring order, people who bring stability. Clearly, peace is what people are looking for, and we as a church have the Prince of Peace as the head of the church. So we as a church have this incredible opportunity to model for the rest of the world what it looks like to truly live in peace, to truly live in such a way that everything is as it should be. Everything is as it should be. Now, we're not just talking about the absence of conflict. Okay? That's kind of why I think having the softball team write peace on their card and then take a video of them is kind of humorous because I've never been a part of a softball game where there was no conflict, okay? So uh, it, it doesn't mean the absence of conflict. No, there's, there's going to be conflict. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble. He said, take heart, I've overcome the world. But even Jesus himself is insinuating, hey, you're going to find conflict. You put two people in a room, you put one guy on a deserted island, there's going to be conflict, all right? There's just going to be conflict. That's not the issue. So if the absence of conflict is the only, only evidence for peace, that's pretty shallow. That's pretty weak. God's got a much bigger design, a bigger, bigger plan for what this looks like. But as the Apostle Paul reminds us here in Galatians, a lot of times what we're talking about is elusive in the world of the church. It's elusive. Um, many times the church can't point to this and say this is us. The church that Paul was writing to was lacking shalom. They were lacking that everything is as it should be. And you do not have to be a Bible scholar to, to see that relationships in this church have become really, really strained. Um, in, in Galatians 5.19, it's not going to be on the screen, but if you want to look at it in your Bibles, uh, he begins naming sins. He begins naming issues that were evidenced in the life of this Galatian church, he starts with these four. Immorality, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Yeah, that's heavy duty. 
I mean, these are like way out there kind of sins. Witchcraft, I mean, I mean, I don't even know, I don't know if I've ever debauched, but the word debauchery sounds significant. That sounds debauchery. I mean, it just sounds like some massive thing that you should not have done. I've debauched. So I, it's just these massive things. And then Paul comes along and he kind of eases up just a little bit. He shares a few more that maybe don't seem as heavy-handed. He says jealousy, envy, you know, you, you guys are a little bit misdirected ambition. We've got factions, envy. But because they're low on the list, we kind of think, well, those aren't so bad. Those are kind of the unseen ones. Nobody sees when I'm jealous. Nobody sees when I'm envious. But then it's almost like to slap everybody in the face. He ends with drunkenness and orgies. So he ramps it back up again. Okay, so here's what I get from that. First of all, are jealousy and selfishness on the same par as debauchery and drunkenness? Evidently they are. Sin is sin. But the bigger issue is this was being manifested among believers. Among believers. This is how they're treating one another. What was going on is their relationships have become destructive. Galatians 1, 6 through 7 says this. It's on the screen. I'm astonished that you so quickly desert him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's any other one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Galatia, and I, I shared this a couple weeks ago, is in present-day Turkey, and there were some believers in that church that had come in who were Jewish, but predominantly the bulk of the people who were followers of Jesus who were part of the Galatian church were Gentiles, non-Jews non-Jews. And uh, Paul had come along into Galatia and he preached that Christ died once for all. There are no divisions. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how you were raised, doesn't matter what you did, doesn't matter any of that stuff. Christ died once for all and we are one in Christ. That was the gospel that Paul preached to the Galatians and they embraced it. But then Paul left and he went to go plant some other churches and some holy rollers came in called the Judaizers, and they came in, and they were preaching a different message. They were preaching a message that basically, in addition to trusting in Jesus, you essentially had to become a Jew. You had to practice Judaism. You had to embrace the tenets of Judaism in order to be a f true follower of Jesus. Specifically, things like keeping the Sabbath laws, um, eating kosher food, and then more specifically, being circumcised. So predictably, the Galatians were like, hold up. They pushed back. And in that pushing back, a lot of tension began to arise in the church. And what's really interesting is it wasn't just the Jews arguing with the Gentiles, but then some of the Gentiles were kind of like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Jesus is a Jew, and I get it. You know, if, if that's what it takes to follow Jesus, then I'll do whatever I got to do. And so next thing you know, you've got some fairly legalistic Gentiles You've got these Gentiles in the middle, and you've got these Jewish people over here, and these Jewish people are fighting with these Gentile people, and these Gentile people are fighting with these Jewish people, but then you've got these Gentile people and these Gentile people that are fighting with each other, and all of a sudden there's this zero peace among them. Zero peace. They start almost acting in an elitist way, and in it, they, they start struggling with entitlement, and uh, it's, a, it's amazing 
that these once vibrant churches that were in Galatia lacked peace. They'd become entitled, uh, love was lacking, joy had vanished, and now they had no peace. No peace. How quickly things go downhill when you remove those three things, love, joy, and peace. Again, the world watches. And that was one of the significant issues for that church, is that the world around them, the mission was not being fulfilled because of who they had become and who they weren't. So let's talk about reality TV for a second. So <laughs> reality TV really kind of began around 1973. There was a PBS special called The American Family. That was kind of um, the world's first taste of what it looked like to kind of peer into the life of people in reality. And then uh, it kind of got on a back burner, but then around 1992, and you're going to have to remember I'm Generation X, which means I will perpetually have gotten the short end of the stick. No matter what you tell me, I got a chip on my shoulder. And uh, baby boomers are baby boomers and millennials are millennials, but I'm the forgotten generation in the middle. So I'm Generation X, but I was also a child of the 80s. So I'm also of the MTV generation. And in 1992, MTV picked it up and they ran with a reality show called The Real World. Okay, The Real World was really the first modern invasion into the world of reality TV. And so here's the formula. You take seven or eight young adults, generally from different backgrounds. You know, you got a country singer over here. You got a hip-hop artist over here. You got... You know, anything and everything, all these different, they're all different, and you cram them into a, a city, into an apartment, you turn on the cameras, you make them live together, and you just wait. You just wait. And the inevitable will always happen. It is the exact reason why some of you people tune into The Bachelor. It's the, it's the exact reason why we tune into survivor it's it's yes there's something about you know them achieving some things and getting the proposal and all that kind of different stuff but we thrive on the conflict we love watching the conflict that show the real world would never have still been going on had it not been for the fact that all you have to do is get a group of people and put them in an uncomfortable situation and turn on the cameras and wait conflict will happen and everybody tunes in to watch because you know what in a strange dysfunctional way it's kind of comforting to know that other people have more dysfunction than you <laughs> other people are more screwed up than you isn't that awesome i thought i was really screwed up but not like them not like them unfortunately for many unchurched people the church is a reality show and in a world of social media, it's a 24-7 reality show. Make no mistake. They see conflict among believers. They see different types of Christians fighting with one another, being horrific towards one another on social media. They pop popcorn, they watch the show, and they're thankful that they have nothing to do with that. Thankful. When they get tired of watching, they realize the church is no different. <laughs> the church is no different. 
than all of the junk we see in our world today. And so they grab the remote where they just, they just scroll on past. Here's the bigger problem with that. According to Scripture in the book of Ephesians, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the world through the church. The manifold wisdom, the gospel, the love, the grace of Jesus will be made known to the world through you, through me, and how we treat one another. That's a problem. There's also another place in Scripture, a couple times, where the church is described as the bride of Jesus Christ. The bride is being prepared for the bridegroom. What that tells me is, if you're careless with the church, you're careless with Jesus' bride. And if I were Jesus, I'd take that personally. I would take that personally. I'm consistently amazed about our concern of how the world treats the church. So worried that our rights are going to be infringed upon, that, that somehow something is going to hinder our... The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Jesus said that. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We're so afraid of what the world is doing to the church, with this outside influence. We're so afraid we're going to have to pay taxes one day. I mean, we're so worried about all of these different things. My experience, honestly, though, is that the church sometimes has no problem sabotaging its own mission and does not need help from the world in doing so. The reputation of Jesus is lifted or brought down by the presence or the absence of peace among us. In a world that has zero peace, zero peace, one of the absolute greatest proofs of transformation is our ability to disagree, <laughs> our ability to have differing opinions, and yet somehow in this ulterior kingdom kind of a way, still show love to one another and embrace one another and say things like, peace be with you, peace be with you. We're still one in Christ. What an amazing testimony to the world. Galatians 3, 26 through 28 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew or Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those divisions, those divisions that rob people of peace, those divisions that rob a family of peace, those are abolished, those are gone, they don't exist. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So Jesus has already dealt with the prime thing that removes peace from our midst, and that's our divisions. It's our divisions. It's the idea that you've got one group and another group. Jesus has removed those in him, in him. Yesterday was Juneteenth. Juneteenth is now a federally recognized holiday. I'm glad for that. There's, that this, is, this is something that I'll be 47 this August. I'll be honest, only a couple years ago did I ever, ever discover that it took two years after slavery was abolished for some slaves in Galveston, Texas to be even told about it. 
be even informed. You've been free for two years. Now you can go. The reason I bring that up is because whenever there's a division, there's a lack of peace. If things are not as they should be. Are you following me? There is no shalom. There is no things as it should be when we continue to harbor and, and, and point out these differences and highlight these differences. There was peace. There's a reason Juneteenth is celebrated. is because it's one more step in things being as they should be. That's why we celebrate those things. That's why we celebrate all kinds of things. Now, there is another reason that the relationships in the church in Galatia were unhealthy. And you can see it all throughout chapter 5. I'm not gonna, it's not going to be on the screen, but verse 16, Paul says, live by the Spirit. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is joy, peace, on and on. Verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, you are not the peacekeeper. I'm not the peacekeeper of our village. The Holy Spirit is the peacekeeper. He's the one, because the world has been seeking to find ways to create peace, and we make bombs to achieve it. That is not the way of Jesus. I'm not saying we don't defend our country. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not being weird. But, but there, that's a distortion of what it means to achieve peace. The idea of Christian peace is the idea that things are as they should be. That requires humility. It requires a, a level of selflessness that doesn't originate with us. That only comes about as I started surrendering parts of my life to the Holy Spirit and allow Him to have His way with me and in me to manifest true peace as it should be out of my life. The Spirit is the peacekeeper. And it makes sense. So rewind with me. A little before this time, uh, Jesus has been crucified. He's died. He's been buried. He's risen. And you and I don't know all of the details of all the exchanges that happened in the upper room with the disciples, but the Gospels give us a hint at some of the things that the disciples in those hours and, and moments after the crucifixion and resurrection, what they were experiencing. First of all, they were afraid. They were hiding. Okay, Jesus had just been executed. There was absolutely no reason that they weren't next on the list. So their lives were in danger, so they're hiding. They don't know what to do. Then, then there's this confusion about his body being gone. They'd evidently forgotten the things that Jesus had said, and so his body is gone. Did somebody take his body? Did somebody move his body? Surely there's got to be some justification for it. Then the ladies, they come back, and this is predictable. They say, hey, guys, we just saw Jesus. He rose from the dead. And they're like, no, no, it's a total dude thing. <laughs> no, I got to see it for myself. I don't believe you. Then they've got this issue of, okay, so this three-year train ride that they've been on is now over. So do I just go back home? Do I go back to fishing? Do I go back to my tax collecting booth? I mean, what do I do? What's my next step? This was a really confused, fearful, frightened group of Jesus followers right after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, they could have done what churches normally do in a crisis. We probably should have a meeting. You know, let's have a meeting, and there's got to be like, we'll put together an investigation. You guys go to the tomb. 
you got to agree on the time and the place, but you guys go. You know, we got to make sure all of you can go. And, you know, we, we tend to bog things down. None of that stuff is going to generate what those guys needed in that moment. Those guys needed in that moment more than anything else, peace. They needed reassurance that everything is as it should be. They didn't feel that way. That was not their current experience. And so what did Jesus do? He shows up. He shows up in their midst and he says, peace be with you. Twice. So he must have meant it. He gives them peace. The very thing that they needed. Now, Jesus couldn't stay. He needed to go to the Father. So he gave them a gift, his Holy Spirit, to be with them and, more importantly, to be in them always. And this is what happened. Jesus gave them peace. Then he gave them the Spirit to keep it. He gave them peace. Then he put his Spirit in them so that they could keep peace. There's a guy named Ken Sand. He's the president of a ministry called Peace, Peacemaker Ministries, is what it's called. And he was writing once about a church that he was consulting with, that worked with, where the elders and the pastors, they had a falling out. And uh, this is what he writes. He wrote this. They'd been at odds for a year. They sent a file of their emails and letters to each other. Something struck me. There wasn't the slightest reference to Jesus. There were accusations, what you should do, what you failed to do, even scripture references. When I met with them, I said, there are real issues here, but how does God factor in? How is the fact that Jesus died for your sins affected the way you are relating to one another? There was silence. One elder finally stated, we've completely lost sight of Jesus. So then he writes this, how does that happen? Well, you lose sight of Jesus when you stifle the Holy Spirit, work in your own strength, and pursue your own agenda. They weren't allowing the Spirit to produce patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They were allowing their sinful natures to produce discord, jealousy, anger, dissension, and factions. Then he writes this, it is frightening how easily this can happen in a church. In a church. I can think of a few times in ministry, in my ministry, where the churches that I've served have been tested in this, in this idea of peace. Uh, differences of opinion on, on whatever, anything you can come up with. How building space is used, or what color you should paint a nursery, or you know, what kind of batteries you buy for the microphones. I mean, people will fight literally about anything. Those are pretty minimal issues. But then there's those other issues that come up that really do threaten the peace of a group of people, of a family. Um, there have been times more recently, peace was tested in conversations about what does it look like to truly love your neighbor? What does it look like to engage in legitimate racial reconciliation? Or what does it look like for a Christian 
to speak into and engage in the world of the political divide that embraces our country right now. Peace. Real peace is always tested. Always tested. Would you agree with me this morning that the revealer of whether or not we are keeping peace plays itself out in how we treat one another and interact with each other? That's the biggest revealer is in how we engage one another. I've said this before and you're going to hear me say it again. I am jealous for you. I'm jealous for us as a church. What I mean is whenever something comes to disrupt the peace that we enjoy and witness to as a body of believers to the rest of the world, my defenses go up. They always have for 25 years. (laughs) Like, hey, quit messing with my people. (laughs) My my defenses go up because I want to protect our peace, the peace that we have, the witness we have around us and to each other. And let's remember, as we're thinking about that, the name of our church is Real Life Community. I mean, y'all picked that name at some point. (laughs) I wasn't here, but you talk about a sobering name of a church. Real Life Community. Real life dictates that there are going to be moments that come that threaten to disrupt our peace. Some of them, simple things. But there will be moments that come that threaten to bring division, to play to the weaker aspects of our nature. This is, this is real. We are, we are real people li- living in a living room of sorts here, coming together to do family business. There's always going to be something There's always going to be something that's done that you would have maybe done different or something that should have been said that wasn't said and you wish it would have been and and you don't think you would have done it that way. But, you know, all those kinds, there will always be those kinds of different things, but then there's something sacred that we protect when we seek out peace in the sense that things are as they should be between us, between us. There will be all kinds of different things. There will be all kinds of Really, I, get, I tell you this all the time. I wake up in the morning and my list starts going off. I get super excited about some things that we should be doing. And I got, I got ideas. I got plans and, and all kinds of different stuff. And I'm not flying off solo by myself. I'm super excited to be your pastor. I'm super excited to be here. I'm super excited that my family's in Portage now. I'm super excited. I'm super excited to say I'm super excited. So, so I'm super excited about all of that. But there's, there's conversations that we're going to have to engage in. There's, and I know you know this. I'm the new guy on the block, so there's going to be some changes. Things move and shift. We're going to be talking about adding staff person before too long. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of different things that take place. And though, Satan would love more than anything to grab any of those things and twist it. And twist it in such a way that it somehow gets stuck in our craw or, or whatever happens. And we, we begin to allow Satan to foster seeds of division when there's just no seeds to plant. We need to not give that soil away for those seeds. We give our soil away to grace seeds, to love seeds, to joy, peace, patience seeds, so those can be fostered in our lives and in our interactions with each other. And as we look to the future, we as people who point to this list and say, this is us, we invite the Holy Spirit to strengthen our relationships. 
with one another, to knit us together in love, and to fit us together as diverse members of one family, one family, because this is us. Peace. Peace is us. Amen? Peace is us. With that in mind, can I just challenge you? Let's be sure that we regularly create space for the Holy Spirit to move. To move. I mean, as we gather for worship, acknowledge that the Spirit was here waiting for us to show up. We, we did not have to wait for Jesus. We didn't have to wait for the Holy Spirit to lean into us today. He's waiting for us. So as we gather together, we acknowledge the Spirit's presence in our singing and, and in prayer together. When your ministry team, if you're a part of a ministry team, if you're a part of a life group, if you're a part of anything, sound, any, anything, whenever you get together, take a moment and just stop and engage the Holy Spirit that is present with you and invite the Holy Spirit to move among you and pray together, support one another, encourage one another. When in the course of our life together, I keep pointing to me and you, but it's us, okay, you get that. But in the course of our life together, maybe we bump into somebody who does something we wouldn't do or does something different than, than, than we think should be done or says something off or all this other kind of different stuff. Maybe for a brief moment, we can allow for the possibility that maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit is trying to do something in that encounter and knock off some of these rough edges in both of our lives so that we might reflect more and more things as they should be. Peace. Imagine what a witness of peace that would look like to the world who's watching. Who's watching. I'm going to ask you to stand if you would. I want to read for you uh, a passage of scripture, kind of as a benediction, maybe even a blessing uh, over us today, and then I'll close in prayer, but it's from Hebrews chapter 13. The verses 20 through 21, you'll see it on the screen. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, as we stand here as your people, it is a blessed privilege to be called a child of God. And Father, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. There's a relational aspect tying us to you when peace is a part of that mix. Would you help us to take that to heart today? Would you help us to realize not just the great responsibility, but the great and wonderful experience it is when brothers and sisters live together in harmony. Unite our spirits together. Bind us together. Father, uh, there are dreams to be dreamed. There are visions to be had. There are plans to be made. But Father, we want those anointed and covered by you. Help us, Father, as you lean into us with these different fruit of the Spirit to lean into you now. And allow your Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Allow us, Father, the, the sight to see the things in our lives that we need to let go of and need to surrender so that these fruit can be manifested more and more 
in our lives so they can come out in our relationships, in our marriages, in our work relationships, in our relationships with siblings and parents or, or who el- whoever, Father, but m- almost most importantly, in our relationships as we reflect what it means to be the living body of Jesus right here in the world we live in today. Help us, Father, to be selfless and in humility seek you in everything. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. It is in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Hey, God bless you. Thank you again for being here. Guys, make sure you grab one of those uh, out in the foyer. That's a gift to you. God bless you. Thank you for being here.